Intensely Inquisitive, the podcast that searches for answers to life's big and not so big questions from the people qualified to give them with your host, Orion Kelly. Hi, and thanks for taking the time to listen to Intensely Inquisitive. I'm Orion Kelly. At the core of this podcast is a desire to understand things on a deeper level, to know more and ask why. My purpose is to empower people with knowledge, education and growth opportunities through open, honest and inquisitive conversations. In this episode, we explore the topic of autism and ask the question, are more people being diagnosed with autism than ever before? My guests from Autism Spectrum Australia, or ASPECT, are Dr Tom Tutton, a clinical psychologist and the national manager of ASPECT practice, and Thomas Kuzma. Thomas has autism and is the student mentor and engagement officer at ASPECT. Before we get to Thomas and hear his personal story of living with autism, let's first start with our guest, Dr. Tom Tutton. Tom, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. Firstly, if I could, just get you to tell us a little bit about your role as a clinical psychologist, but also with ASPECT. Tell us a bit about what you do. I've been working for ASPECT now for more than 10 years, and my role has evolved essentially to work partly within our organization to support ASPECT staff. So we have nearly 1,300 staff who work right across Australia. My job is to help link good, solid research to their day-to-day practice, so it's to keep them in touch with what they need to do to make sure they have the resources and the evidence-based tools to do their job. So I'm very much sort of strapped sort of one foot in the practice camp and one foot in the research camp. The other side of my job is that I work outside of Aspect doing a whole range of different consultancies and different types of supports, including workshops for parents and carers, presentations, um, and other little bits of work with people who want to try and understand uh, autism better and try and support people on the spectrum uh, well as well. And that's really the point of this podcast. So you've come to the right place, my friend. Now what I'd like to do is start with, I've heard autism uh, called a disorder, disability, a place on the spectrum. I mean, it's quite confusing for just, you know, regular everyday people that don't know much about it. So could you just kind of briefly explain what is autism and what is it actually referred to as? Look, I think it's confusing for everybody, even when you've had experience within the field. I think my complicator here by saying that autism can be considered a disorder, a disability, and a difference, and all of those things. And the way I think of understanding it really is that autism is such an incredibly diverse condition that it can be, in some places, look like a disorder. In some places, it can be a disability. In some places, it's it's, it's more of a difference. Um, and even you know, just a few weeks ago, a very well-known researcher in the autism field wrote an article really around this topic in terms of thinking about autism in these different ways. There's a phrase in the autism community, which um, you will hear, um, and Thomas, who I know, um, who's on the spectrum, he, he uses this a lot, which is once you've met one person on the spectrum, you've just met one person on the spectrum. Yes. And what they mean by that is, is that everybody's really different. So to have a kind of one-size-fits-all way of understanding autism makes it sort of problematic. And I think we're trying to move away from that, but then it does make it a difficult thing to describe. So for me, I would describe autism very much as a disability. That's sort of the way that I frame it. Sometimes people refer to it as an invisible disability. I think that's a kind of a nice touch in terms of helping people understand um, some of the challenges. But within this, we'd always talk about what we call the social model of disability versus the medical model of disability. So the medical model really is about that. that um, it, that's where the language of disorder comes from, is that there's something wrong in the individual that needs fixing or treating. Whereas the, the social model, I think 
acknowledges that there are some things within people that uh, make life very difficult, but a lot of what is disabling for people is actually in their environment. So if you think about people who use a wheelchair, yes, um, your leg's not working is disabling, but really what's disabling is the environment around you not being built to meet your needs and so not having ramps to get into your shop, not having doorways that allow you to access things, not having the world operate at your level. That's really where the disability is. And I think, again, when it comes to autism, there is that sort of mix between sometimes things people on the spectrum perhaps really, really struggle to communicate. They have co-occurring conditions like epilepsy, which make life very difficult. But then in other situations, the challenge is very much out in the world. It's about people communicating in, in a way that they don't understand or not understanding the way that people on the spectrum communicate. The sensory world might be really problematic and hard for people to put up with. It. It's loud, it's bright, it's busy, it's noisy, and, and people feel that very much. Or things aren't sort of well laid out or the structures aren't supportive of them. And I think um, I acknowledge, again, that there is that difference within lots of people in the spectrum where it is somewhere between disorder, disability, and difference. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it really does. And it really leads me into the to the next question, Tom, and it's, that was a great yeah. insight. But I guess the question is, so why is there a spectrum for autism? And, you know, what does a place on that spectrum actually mean? Look, I think the word spectrum, you have to sort of go back and, and understand a little bit of the history of autism, that when autism was first diagnosed, it really was just called, uh, it had a sort of different name, but autistic disorder. There was only one way of thinking about this. And that was historically where people just diagnosed people where autism was really obvious. There was often an intellectual disability. The, the people hadn't learned to cope in the, the, the world as we know it, and their behaviors were different and sometimes challenging. So that very much was sort of how autism developed. But the more people have understood about, about autism, the more people have realized that there are other people um, who are also autistic, who perhaps are less obviously so, and it's taken longer to understand how autism expresses in them, how they perceive the world. Um, and this group previously was called, we've got the label of Asperger's syndrome. So that, that the idea that there are differences in groups in terms of people on the spectrum, uh, nominally, um, and I'll, I'll tell you why these aren't good terms, people have used high functioning and low functioning to differentiate. So the spectrum kind of links that idea. This is what people were thinking is we can show that autistic people might have a variety of abilities or skills. The issue with that is that it actually isn't a very good description of autistic people is that it's not just this sort of binary spectrum where you get people with very high support needs at one end and, and low support needs at another. Again, it's more complex than that. The way that I think we like to think of it more and more, if you can imagine like a rainbow color wheel where each color, colored spoke represents an area of difference or disability. So one might be communication, another might be social interactions, another might be another color might be sensory. Another color might be how people use their leisure and play, what their interests and passions are. And that then once you assess somebody on all of those areas, you actually get quite a unique shape in the middle. There might be different types of stars or things like that. So really, I think the spectrum was an attempt to show the diversity in autism. But really, at the moment, we're having these conversations to say, we actually need to move beyond that and actually show how, how even more individual and how complex autism really is. So in short, what you're saying is autism is a better way of describing it than autism spectrum disorder. Is that kind of what you're saying to moving yeah. towards that? Yes, certainly we, we don't use the word disorder anymore. I think there are a lot of people on the spectrum who find that very problematic. You know, they're, they're proud of their autism, they're proud of who they are, and they don't like to see it being a disorder. And certainly I think the implications of a disorder, if you use that label, 
it's very much then about how you support people being deficit based. We only focus on what's wrong with people. Yeah. We don't acknowledge that they have strengths. We don't change the world around them. I think at the moment we use the word autism, you know, people in the autism spectrum or autistic people, but really pushing to to show the diversity within that group, um, that everybody has strengths and capabilities. Um, people have support needs and there is a very strong disabling component, um, but it's just about understanding individuals more and more rather than, you know, that blunt categorization of high functioning or low functioning. Yeah, it, it sounds fascinating and complex in the same sentence. Now, primarily, it seems that autism is diagnosed in, in kids and children and adolescents. Yeah. And for that group, I mean, this is, we're talking in general terms clearly, but are there yeah. known signs or traits? Yes, indeed. So, Aspect has a, an assessments team, and very regularly, uh, people come in for diagnostic assessments. What they're looking for really is a combination of, of two areas. One area is around social communication differences, and the other one is what's called restricted repetitive behaviors and interests. Those are the sort of two key areas where autism is diagnosed, um, and it's done via uh, a combination of a structured interview. So that might be the person talking typically to the person's uh, parents and family about their development and about uh, areas of, of of how they operate. And it's also done by a sort of structured interaction. So it's having that person in the room and going through a, a series of interactions that aim to elicit responses that you can then judge uh, whether or not they might be on the spectrum. So just to give you a couple of examples of the sorts of things that people might be looking for, one area is called joint attention. So if you've ever been out with a typically developing kid and you see an airplane pass by or a helicopter or something that's quite cool, often what they'll do is they'll point up at the helicopter. They'll look over at you as mum or dad and then back at the helicopter. That's called joint attention. It's very much about they want to share the experience of that cool thing socially with you and they'll do it through kind of connecting through eye contact and things like that. Whereas lots of people on the spectrum don't do that in the same way. They might enjoy the helicopter, but they don't necessarily share that socially. Another area might be something like uh, pretend play. So um, very typically, um, young kids might, I don't know, grab a hairbrush and then say, look, this is this is a hovercraft, and they go, and, and things like that. So in the assessment, um, what people will do We'll try and get people to, to use different objects in a range of different ways, like here's a banana, let's use it as a telephone, and to see whether kids will go through with that kind of a level of, of, of pretense as well. So that's just a couple of examples. Joint attention, pretend play might be some of the things that people would be looking for. And I think that when you hear it you know, from, from someone like yourself, it's amazing how simple it seemed to to a you know to, to yeah. a layperson to a layperson listening when you when you explain it it's wow you know it, it's it's quite extraordinary but I can understand in diagnosing it I guess in 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 a team effort with pediatricians yeah. and clinical psychologists it would be extraordinarily hard but it's it's interesting when you when you say it like that it, it there's something so simple yet so complex about the diagnosis isn't there Yeah that's right and I think even though many people I think they get a sense that when they meet people, they've had lots of experiences like, yes, I've met people like this, you know, probably autistic. It's important that the, the process is rigorous and it's, and it's standardized as well. And actually, just last year, there was a first set of nationwide guidelines around the diagnosis of autism released in Australia, which is amazing. And it, that really aims to make it mean that wherever you go, whatever age, Anywhere in Australia, you'll have a really consistent approach to diagnosis. And I think that's really important that we don't get some areas where people are um, 
you know, diagnosed incorrectly or if there's other things that might better explain what's happening, you know, that they're not overlooked. And I think that kind of leads into a question which really fascinates me. Can people live their life, I mean, literally their entire life, undiagnosed, being undiagnosed with autistic and never know they actually had it. And looking back in hindsight with your help, would there be traits or challenges that they've experienced that you could actually put down to to a misdiagnosis or can it be quite complicated when they start to age in life and you can put it down to other things? Look, in theory, absolutely yes. I think people can have lived a life where you know, they would meet those criteria for being on the spectrum, but haven't ever known it. I've probably met some of those people in the past as well, but diagnosis for them wouldn't necessarily be helpful. You know, maybe they're they're married, they have kids, they're a good family family man or family woman, you know, they work, but they've just often found ways to accommodate their differences to make sure they find their way in the world. So it just has meant that there hasn't been a need for a diagnosis because they've managed to find a way um, to get by. So in a way... Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, that makes yeah. total sense. And I guess my, my, my kind of follow-up question, and I'm not devil's advocate, but my follow-up question is, yeah. well, as you say, it, it wouldn't really make... It, it might not be helpful. Uh, well, you know, yes. why? Why wouldn't... Because yeah. I, I would think some people would get to a point in their life when, as you say, they have, you know, they, they have a partner, they have kids, they have a job, they have mm. a life, they're happy, uh, you know, but they, yeah. they've always felt like something's missing or they don't fit in or things aren't right. And would and even though a diagnosis, you know, it's a bit late in life, wh- why wouldn't it be overly helpful, do you think, in your kind of professional opinion? Yeah, look, I, th- I mean, I think very much it depends on the person. So there are certainly many adults who are diagnosed late in life and for them it feels like a huge burden has been lifted because they've come to understand themselves. And I think those people typically be people who have often felt they've been significantly different. They've struggled in some areas at school and excelled in other areas. They've struggled maybe to make friends, to build relationships. They've got passions, but people don't seem to acknowledge their passions. And I think that sense of frustration and, and of being misunderstood, if that's who you are and that's been your experience, then having a diagnosis then all of a sudden makes sense. And I've met a lot of those people over the years where they come into this identity and they realize, ah, this is who I am. This explains why things have been difficult. And it's not necessarily doesn't blame them. It's just this is why other people haven't really understood me or, or supported me as I should have been. So I wouldn't say that it's never a, a benefit because I've seen many and met many people who it's been wonderful for. But again, if you're a person where you don't have those questions about your life. You felt different, but it's like, okay, I've managed, I've got by, I, I'm happy with who I am. I love my wife. I love my kids. My job's great. I've managed to find my way. Then it might not add something else into that mix that would be positive for that person. Which makes total sense. There's the validation, yeah. there's the validation argument. And then there's also the argument yeah. of, I just don't care. You know, and that's, yes. and they work both ways. Are you aware of a trend, you know, whether it's in this country or globally of more adults because I know it's, it's a childhood thing, more adults being diagnosed yeah. with autism. And why, why is that? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that's right. I think, you know, what we're seeing is, one, more awareness of autism. So if you are one of those adults where perhaps it's not really obvious that you're different because you've learned maybe to mask those differences, you've learned to cope, you've learned to fit in, that it's likely that you'll come across the word autism, you'll come across some of the awareness campaigns that happen typically around uh, early April, and it may be that then you start to realize that there's similarities between how people are describing autism in a movie or in the media or something like that and how you see yourself. I think that's one thing is there's a lot of talk and a lot of awareness. I think other people have now much better recognition 
of the more subtle signs, particularly in, in women and girls as well. So traditionally, diagnosis has been used it's sort of based on a set of criteria that were developed for men and boys. And we're realizing that actually sometimes autism looks different. So I think adult women would be an area of growth in terms of, of diagnosis as well. But also, I think what I've experienced as well is that sometimes when kids receive a diagnosis, that the family go and they hear what the person has to say about autism, you know, and mum and dad, either one of them will like look at the look at it and it's like, oh, man, that's me. And then they'll go, you know what, that's also my granddad as well. So it, it, it is that kind of retrospective diagnosis that it happens okay. for a young person, but it, it, increasingly people, are, you know, sort of um, back generations realise that maybe they're also on the spectrum. Can I ask, uh, you know, is that legitimate? Do you do you respect that? Do you believe in that? Is that something that's that has evidence behind it that is that is kind of something you, you can actually actually put weight on, or is that just someone having a me too moment and you know their own ego kind of yeah. getting? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean. I think obviously if you've been through a diagnostic process and you've been given that label, they can't say fairer than that. There are conversations at the moment around people who sort of self-diagnose and whether that's valid. You know, and I, I don't want to tell people that that's not valid at all. There's so many barriers in terms of yeah. people actually getting to an assessment in terms of the availability, the cost and things like that. So I think if people want to say, yes, that's me and identify that way, I have no problem with that at all. Okay. If it helps you understand yourself and it helps you operate in the world, in a better way than go for your life. And in that context, you know, so you know, two parents take their their child and the child's diagnosed. And yeah. then and then one and then the exact story you've just you've just told, one of the parents, they look at each other, one of the parents go, Well that's me, you know, that's me. Yeah. Um, in that instance, how do you deal with a situation like that? I mean, it, do you go, Well, no worries, then that's you or I mean it's a it seems yeah, like a, look, it seems like a an interesting situation. Yeah, it is an interesting situation. You know, I think that if people were interested in pursuing that, that it may be that they come back another time for a, for a formal diagnosis. So it's like, okay, you feel like you've connected with this. It might help explain some of your characteristics and some of the history that you've had. Let's come back and explore it some more. I think I'd only encourage people to explore it. It may not be right for some people. It may be that actually, no, you know, there's some bits of that which are, are right for me, but other bits, you know, it isn't that at all. And maybe there's just other reasons why I am who I am. But I wouldn't certainly encourage people to explore that for them. I think, you know, we all want to understand ourselves well. It's part of being successful, isn't it? I think in life, yeah. it's understanding who you are and why you are. So I think any journey down that road is a positive journey. Is there a genetic connection to, you know, passing it down? Uh, yes. So genetic, you think there's two, two bits of potential here in terms of genes, one of which is that it's inherited from your family in some way and certainly you know, the figures where they look at identical twins, where one is diagnosed as being autistic, it's much, much more likely, I think it's like 70% more likely that the other one will also be on the spectrum. So, you know, because of that, that there's a strong genetic component where people share the same genes, it expresses again, very, um, in quite high rates. But what that also tells you, it's not the whole story. There may be some other components that contribute to autism, but we haven't really worked that out yet. Having said that, even if autism is in your family, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll have an autistic kid. Sometimes the way that genes are, it's a kind of spontaneous change in the genetic process that means autism will just arrive, you know, even if it's not, you haven't had it in your in your family history. Okay. And professionally, yeah. from your point of view, are there, are there challenges compared to diagnosing, you know, kids and, and diagnosing children? Are there challenges to diagnosing an adult? I mean, yes, I think there are. There, there, but there are there are the tools out there to help develop that. There are, unfortunately are not good tools for adult women at the moment, and I think that's 
Um, they are currently sort of being developed. I would imagine if you've got to your adult life without a diagnosis, the signs and symptoms of autism for you would be more subtle. And I think that's the challenge is it's trying to have conversations and histories to elicit that, the more subtle signs. And I think sometimes, as we've said, people, they spend their life trying to fit in, hiding their difference, learning how to cope, and they get very good at that. And I think if you're a diagnostician, you then have to work through those processes to allow people to sort of share generally who they are and try and let down some of those um, protective mechanisms. So it's important that any diagnostic situation is done where people feel open to being exactly who they are without having to sort of hide or or shy away. Now, you mentioned Asperger's a a while back when you're going through the history of the spectrum. It's it's funny, you talk to some people and they go, don't worry that it's not in the DSM anymore. You know, we can still call it a thing. From your point of view, is it still a thing? What is it? And how is it connected to autism? Yeah, yeah. So again, it's part of that history of autism. There was a a kind of well-known clinician uh, back in the 40s who first started thinking about autism called Hans Asperger. And that part of the spectrum where people perhaps can communicate reasonably well, they have normal to high IQs, they have desires to be social, was named after him. So that was a category of autism. But recently, the way that autism was categorized was changed, and they dropped that term from the sort of medical categorization. So everything falls under the autism spectrum. So it's sort of fallen out of use that way. But obviously, and you'll talk to Thomas who will sometimes describe himself as an Aspie as well. If you were diagnosed like that, and this has become part of your identity, well, nobody can take that away from you. You have every right to call yourself that for as long as you like. (laughs) It's just a word that obviously will fall out of use because there will be no more of that kind of diagnostic label being applied to people. I can imagine a lot of adults, you know, they, they get through their working career, you know, maybe midlife, and they, they start to look back and go, geez, I wonder why I've uh, had some, 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 so many troubles on and off in the workplace over yeah. time. And I, and, and I yeah. wonder from your point of view, do you think people with autism, and so let's, let's stop saying, you know, high-functioning, low-functioning, just people with autism yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that, you know, can be treated like just everyone else. Hey, you're just a person. If you're here to work, you're here to work. Or do you, do you think they require a different style of workplace management? And what would that actually entail in 2019? Yeah. Look, I think that there is that sort of middle ground between they're here to work because, and, you know, we need to make some accommodations. I think we're finding more and more that wherever you are on the spectrum, people make incredibly valuable workers and to the point where many people are being hired as an advantage for organizations. You know, if you're a computing company or a bank, now people are coming to our organization saying, we want to source some of these people because of the additional skills they bring. So there's no doubt that autistic people make and can make wonderful employees. However, I think we would always recommend employing people um, where their strengths lie. Another one is just thinking about the sensory nature of the environment. I have a, a colleague of mine who works in a bank, and one of the basic things they did for him was that just they moved his cubicle to a quieter part of the office, away from the foot traffic and people buzzing by. And it just means that he can sit there quietly and get on with it without being kind of overwhelmed or distracted by the noise. I think sometimes people are helped by having organizational support, so to-do lists and checklists and things like that. So it's really clear when they come what they have to do, when they have to do it, how much they have to do, all of those sorts of things. That clarity and role is is really helpful. And just one more example, I think, is just making sure that the expectations of people uh, fit just around completing their work. 
Sometimes I think the more challenging situations come up when people have to, are forced to go and sit and have lunch with other people or come out for drinks afterwards, which people may not want to do for a whole range of different reasons. But there may be work expectations that people participate in this. And I know that there have been people who have found life at work very difficult because they don't want to engage in these sorts of things and they're kind of being forced into doing it. So I think it's not huge changes. And I think that's why I love doing some of this sort of work, small Changes can make the biggest difference and find a real home for these valuable employees. It's been an extraordinarily fascinating conversation. Do you mind if I, I ask you one of the questions about I'm going to ask Thomas? Obviously, Thomas is autistic and we're going to have a chat to him in just yeah. a moment. But can I ask one of the questions I'm going to ask him? Is that okay? So yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to, because it'll be interesting to hear the difference. What do you wish people who are not autistic knew about autism? It's a really good question. I think we probably work a lot with, with myths about autism. You know, we have groups in our organization where we sit and we talk to a lot of autistic folks and we try and get information for them. They help guide our organization. And I think there's a lot of myths out there. And there's probably a top 10 that we could go through right now that if people knew that these were not true, then I think that would be incredibly helpful. Um, So that might be something like, um, oh, you might, you make eye contact. You can't be autistic. That would be one thing. You're a girl. You can't be autistic. You talk. You can't be autistic. The phrases that people say like, we're all a little bit autistic, aren't we? I think can delegitimize the sort of the struggles that people face with autism in the world. You know, that it is a disability. It is a challenge. We're not all a little bit autistic. It's a bit like saying, because I have contact lenses, I'm a little bit blind. I don't understand what it's like to be blind in the world. So, I, you know, it's significantly different than that. And I think perhaps some of the associations with autism with with violent behavior, you know, we've had some of our staff say, oh, you know, I work day in, day out with people on the spectrum and people in the public will say, how do you cope with all the violence? And so, well, why do you say that? It's not how it is. We don't have, it doesn't occur. We have good times together. Yes, there's challenges, but they're managed very peacefully. So I think, you know, there are a lot of things that people, a lot of misnomers about autism that I think if we could get rid of them, I think the world will probably be a much more comfortable place. So that's a great answer, Tom. What I get from that is we've got a long ways to go, huh? The wider community. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I think we do. I think it, there's just a lot of compassion. I think just we need to keep having with each other. We need to acknowledge that people are different. We need to we need to embrace difference as something which is something that helps our species work well. Yeah. One of the core kind of philosophies in our environment is this idea of um, of neurodiversity. So it sort of comes from this idea that with environments, biodiversity is, is something that makes the world stronger. The more diverse the plant species and animals, the more likely that area is to survive because of that diversity. And humans are the same. It's great that we have people in our world who think differently, see the world differently, process the world differently, experience things differently, because we can learn from that. It's just important that all of those people, whether it's a difference or a disability, are treated fairly and we protect their rights and we give them every opportunity that's out there as well. And I also got from chatting to you that, you know, you think the profession in, in with regards to the treatment, uh, you know, diagnosis, they also need to need to kind of catch up as well. And, uh, you know. Yes, indeed. No, I agree entirely. And I think, you know, one of the phrases that a lot of autistic people use in terms of the way that organizations and services work is nothing about us without us. And, I, you know, it couldn't support that more thoroughly to say, Whenever we're thinking about autism, whenever we're researching, providing services, we need to include autistic people right in the mix all the way. So to co-produce research, to co-present workshops and things like that. And that's, again, why, you know, the only reason I will agree to speak to you is that you're also speaking to Thomas. 
because my academic understanding of autism in no way kind of replaces his lived experience as well. So I think these two things have to work hand in hand and keep working together. And in doing that, we will develop better and better services. Well, I can't wait to talk to Thomas. He's standing by. So, Tom, thank you so much for your time. It was a fantastic chat. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for your interest. That was Dr. Tom Tutton, a clinical psychologist and the national manager of Aspect Practice. Intensely Inquisitive. I'm Orion Kelly, and thank you so much for listening to Intensely Inquisitive. In this episode, we're exploring the topic of autism. My next guest from Autism Spectrum Australia, or Aspect, is Thomas Kuzma. Thomas has autism and is the student mentor and engagement officer at Aspect. Hey, Thomas, thank you so much for talking to me. Ah, thank you very much. I'd just uh, like to kind of, I guess, start at the start. For those listening, clearly I've already um, announced to the world at large listening to this podcast, Thomas, that you have autism. Could you kind of tell us where you fit on, on the spectrum so we get a better idea? Sure. I am what you would call a high-functioning autistic person. So f- for people that have no idea what you just said, can you kind of yeah. can you kind of broaden that out? So in a spe- on the spectrum, that you can kind of go up and there's kind of low-functioning, high-functioning. So with regards, in effect, is is that around the ballpark of what you, people used to call like Asperger's, that kind of thing? Or am I wrong there? No, no, you, you're, you are right there that Asperger's used to be um, uh, what we now call high-functioning autism. But uh, basically, when it comes down to it, uh, when you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. So you've got those who are high-functioning that uh, can go about their day-to-day lives and yet they still have some issues in uh, processing the day-to-day world that we live in. And then there are those who are more high needs who who need a, a lot more help in today, but they still have some fantastic talents and skills as well. Exactly. Okay. And, and I guess that's that can be a, a challenge, um, you know, for yourself with regards to the broader community and misconceptions there may be among the broader community about autism and the spectrum. So let's try and address that today with you. So could you tell us a bit about your role at Aspect? What do you do? Sure. So I'm both Aspect's engagement officer and student mentor. So as an engagement officer, I go around the greater Sydney area and to several places around Australia talking about what it's like to live on the spectrum and how we can best support the lives of autistic people. This is also through workshops, whether it's about teaching people about the best practices for autism or how people on the spectrum work well in the world of today. Then for my student mentor side, I have one-on-one sessions with students on the spectrum that go to the Aspect schools. There, I help them find their own voice whilst being on the spectrum. This means that they can learn how to advocate for themselves and learn what is truly their awesome secrets and skills that lie within who they are today. Well, it sounds like you do some some amazing stuff. I mean, you might obviously love your job, but it sounds it sounds like it's a a, a really complicated job. I mean, it, it must be, every day must be quite challenging because, you know, as you say, you know, you can't meet one person on the, on the spectrum on Monday and, and have, you know, have the same set of circumstances on Tuesday. Every day is a new day for you, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Outside of work, what kind of things do you, do you like to do, Thomas? 
Well, I'm a huge fan of video games and writing. I'm a major creative nerd. So whether it's <laughs> painting, drawing, or uh, writing my own stories, I'm there. I have been writing my own book about what it's like to grow up in the world of today whilst being autistic. I've been also making a TV show online. So I'm making a series on YouTube about autism and video games and how you can use one to help the other and vice versa. So it's been really interesting to figure out how we can best use video games in the world of today. Also, uh, when I'm not doing that, I'm hanging out in Sydney, collecting comic books and eating ramen with my mates. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about your book, what can I ask you, what is it actually like for you living with autism? Well, growing up, it was a little bit confusing. And uh, when I was a kid, it was actually quite simple because, you know, you have mom and dad to, there to support you. But when you get to high school and you start facing the trivial social situations that you have to deal with, it gets a bit much. So what I learned was that I, I had to learn what it means to be an autistic person in the world of today. This meant through certain stumblings, I had to learn some social cues the right ways and the wrong ways <laughs> of doing things. I mean, I know there have been times where I've made my certain mistakes, but I'm, I'm glad that I did because, I mean, when you recognize those bad emotions and bad social situations, you can do something about it. Yes. And that's one of the great things about being autistic is that we're able to have very analytical minds and we can really take what we understand and what we're passionate about and use it to our advantage. And do you, have you ever, as a mentor, you know, younger younger kids that maybe are you know newly diagnosed, or, do you ever try to pass on advice to them about about your experiences living with autism? It's one of the important parts of it all. When it comes to mentoring, I use what they love, uh, what they need to do, and a bit of myself in order to help them become the best that they can be. This can be by talking about them and the situations that they're in and talking about how it related to me when I was their age. For instance, if it's got to do with uh, online safety, let's face it, the uh, internet's basically the new village. Everyone comes together to see what's new in the world and there's the marketplace that is the social hub of social media. Absolutely. And when you go and you interact with the wrong people, there is ramifications because of that. So I talk about some of the situations where I was, you know, online bullied and I had to deal with harsh realities. And so I would teach them about what's the right way about going about things like online bullying and the social medias. Then in other cases, in the more, you know, real life uh, expectations of the world, I've been using games like Dungeons and Dragons to help them realize the potential that they can learn in the world of today. When I graduated high school, I only had two friends. Uh, one was called Nathan, the other one was called Lauren. And the only way that I was able to uh, socialize 
was when I was with my awesome older brother and his Dungeons and Dragons group. Well, it wasn't Dungeons and Dragons. It was actually a post-apocalyptic type version of it, but we don't have to go into that. (laughs) And so from there, I really learned that one of the awesome things about playing games is that social part. Because for autistic people, when it comes down to it, you have so many um, different types of social cues that you have to understand. But when you have a game and a current matter that everyone can agree on, that can really simplify and make the whole social experience easier. It's an extraordinary idea that you're you're developing. It's it, it sounds like it's uh, you know a passion of yours, which which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, look, maybe you can tell us how we can check out your your YouTube stuff. What's the best way to find some of your YouTube work? Well, my um, my my YouTube series hasn't started yet, but if you uh, stay subscribed to TK Hub World, you should be able to see me soon. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram uh, under the same name, but there's an underscore between the TK and the Hub World. You know, apparently the internet hates space bars. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Now, how do you how do you as a as a person view view autism? Because you know, lay people can call it things like disabilities, disorders, blah blah blah. Yeah. But I mean, how do you actually view it? There's been an interesting story behind that for me. When I was growing up and I first got my diagnosis, my year coordinator called me special. And I just, I I had to take a leave from the room. It was that annoying. There's a little bit of a patronizing view that people can face when they are on the spectrum. Because to be honest, we just want to be treated like everyone else. I had a discussion with Kita Vermeulen, a lovely Dutch doctor at the Asia Pacific Autism Conference in Sydney last year or the year before, 2017. And in that discussion that I had with him, he told me about the beauty of what disorder is because it's not exactly less than, it's just a different way of living. If you have a heart disorder, you just have to live your life differently to someone who doesn't have a heart disorder. If you have an autism spectrum disorder, you just live your life differently to people who are neurotypical. That's you normal folk. And so <laughs> when I looked at it, it didn't really seem like there was anything bad in the end of the day with such a, a word like disorder. But, you know, there's a bit of ugliness when it comes to a word like special. Yes. As I became older and I, because I was diagnosed at the age of 16, when I first met Berinda Karp, she told me, congratulations on being autistic. And I, I was a little bit shocked. I mean, who congratulates you for having a part of what you are? But then I realized that having autism means that I have all these awesome skills. And she really helped me with my motivation and becoming this awesome personality that you hear before you. After that, and when I started delivering talks for people on the spectrum, I was seen by Aspect, who really saw my potential. And with their help, not only did I win an Autism Achievement Award in the field of uh, individual achievement uh, excellence, it's a bit tricky. Um, (laughs) They they helped me go to the Asia-Pacific Autism Conference in Adelaide back in 2013. 
And with their help, I was able to see one of my heroes, John Elder Robeson, who taught me what it really means to be autistic and to be passionate about who you are. And even though there might be hardships in the world of today, if you embrace all of it, the good and the bad, you can really become someone who is fantastic and someone who can really help shape the world of today. Because technically, we're all leaders in our day-to-day lives. We just need to figure out how we can use our best skills to help those around us. Honestly, Thomas, can I say, I personally, I think you're an inspiration to all of us for using what you've got to make a difference on the planet. So congratulations, my friend. You're an inspiration. Now, can can I get you to... So tell us a bit about what what do you actually wish people who are not on the spectrum knew about autism? I asked, you know, I talked to to Tom about myths. What what do you wish we knew about autism? Well, firstly, thank you for that kind compliment. I mean, I I, I do what I can, but honestly, us Aspies, we just want to live our day-to-day lives. We don't want that big, shining light globe on us. Um, I've done some traveling and I have seen all all different types of autism myths. And I've seen how it affects people from not only in Australia, but in America too. And so I've always heard things like, oh, you don't come off as autistic or you're not that autistic. It's kind of like saying, oh, you're not gay. You're not of this different race. It's almost like, you know, trying to disqualify who you are as a person. Yeah. So it, it gets a bit, you know, uh, much. Then there are other items. For instance, you could say, oh, all autistic people are violent. I met someone who was violent and, you know, he was autistic. And I'm like, well, let me put it to you this way. If you go up against me in Mario Kart, I might get angry. But... <laughs> <laughs> but Generally, I'm a laid-back guy, unless, you know, we're playing video games, of course, in which case (laughs) I will get uh, energetic. (laughs) Then there are other ones, like uh, there are no such thing as female autistic people. That's wrong again. A lot of people say that autistic women have a chameleon-type effect, so they have a lot easier times in trying to blend in with the world of today. Another autistic myth that I hate is that fidgeting is bad. Now, a lot of people on the spectrum, they fidget, but it's not called fidgeting. It's called stimming. It's a repetitive action that is used by an autistic person to help them process the world that's going on today. I stim using putty because I just love the malleable feeling that I get when I'm trying to squeeze and stretch the strange plasticine type thing around. It helps me process what's going on. And I've started delivering talks whilst holding it. And it's been really useful. But when I bounce it, I have to run after it. (laughs) (laughs) The last thing that I'd like to point out that is an autism myth is that people say that autistic people are only the receivers of help. The thing is, so many of us autistic people are we try our best to help others wherever we go. We are quite empathetic people. I always hate that word because empathetic sounds like pathetic, but I'm not sure if it should be empathetic or whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) 
the thing is, so many of us, we are people that are trying to have jobs as teachers, as teachers' aides, as youth workers, because we know what it's like to go through hell, whether it's in high school or in the day-to-day world of employment. And when we help others, it really gives us a sense of achievement. Thomas, can I say, if personally, it's been a, it's an, it's been a genuine pleasure to, to talk to you. Absolutely delightful chat. I've really enjoyed it. And I think what's important, I hope you agree, it's a great opportunity for people listening that have no insight into, into autism to listen to our conversation and to, to maybe, maybe break down some boundaries and some walls and see that, hey, we're all just in this together, right? Exactly. One of my life goals is to help spread the word of neurodiversity. And that is basically, we see diversity happening in the world of today, especially with all the Marvel movies coming out with fantastic things like Black Panther and Captain Marvel. If you have a look at TV shows, diversity is really making an impact on screens. And neurodiversity is something that is still making its way downtown. Walking past faces, passing them low down. Sorry, I was watching Terry Crews doing that um, that scene from White Chicks, and I it just got stuck in my head. <laughs> with <laughs> with neurodiversity, we can really help embrace the great strengths and skills of not just autistic people, but people with all kinds of neurological disorders, because at the end of the day. When we think about the strengths and the qualities of our fellow peers and you know fellow humans, um, we can really grow into a, a greater community. Well, I think that's a fantastic life goal, my friend. And and Thomas, it's it's been amazing talking to you. I really do appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed it too. And uh, thank you, thank you so much for your time. No worries. I hope you had fun too. Uh, I, I hope I didn't put too many references to TV shows and games in there. <laughs> You did a great job. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you very much. That was Thomas Kuzma, the student mentor and engagement officer at Aspect. And thank you so much to both of my guests from Autism Spectrum Australia, or Aspect, Dr. Tom Tutton and Thomas Kuzma. And thank you for listening to this episode of Intensely Inquisitive. My hope is that it's empowered you in some way through learning new things, inspiring you to learn more, or simply sparking interesting, deeper conversations. I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation with you, so feel free to like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook. And if there's a topic or question you'd like me to explore in an upcoming episode of Intensely Inquisitive, please message me or post it on the Orion Kelly Facebook page. Until next time, keep asking questions. Thanks for listening to Intensely Inquisitive with Orion Kelly. For more episodes and to stay up to date, like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook.